0: You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is July 20th. Twenty twenty three. It's seven thirty seven p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, and um, I thought that what I wanted to talk about tonight was intentional positivity. It occurred to me that that would be something that uh, is uh, useful to uh, consider and then also to practice. It really is a focus on the divine abodes uh, as the way of cultivating that. One of the things that happens to us is that we develop these working models of ourselves and we develop these working models of the world. And depending on the circumstances of your early conditioning, you can create these patterns of of, uh, activations that are, are biased in the direction of negativity or biased in the direction of positivity. In each moment, The way that we create the experience of self and world is by activating these working models. And what these working models really uh, are about is these gists. Um, Gists are these like little algorithms that activate, that create experience. When we make the gists in the beginning, We take in, through the sensing experiences that we're having, the uh, elements that we usually work with, uh, the touching experience, the seeing experience, the hearing experience, the tasting experience, the smelling experience, and mind, which of course collects all of these things. We develop a, a preference for things that we like and things that we don't like. And so when we scan the environment, We tend to focus on the things that we like and uh, avoid the things that we don't like. So we have these highly curated experiences of the collection of what's actually happening. And then uh, we create conceptual reality from that highly curated selection of mind moments. Once we have the experience in consciousness, it's held in short-term memory for a period of time, maybe 10 or 12 minutes. And then if it, re- if it has a threshold of interest and a threshold of emotional intensity, it's translated from short-term memory into long-term memory, which is actually the creation of these gists. And then the gists are associated with uh, experiences or I like to call them memory threads. The gists activate, and the way that they create experience is by causing a replay of the patterns that the sense gates originally collected. Is that making sense so far? Why this is an interesting thing is because if you... uh, created a memory in your five-year-old sensing recorder and you're now in a 40-year-old or a 60-year-old body, you can't actually play with any accuracy the gist that creates these memory experiences because you don't have the equipment to play them anymore. Is that making sense? So if you have a five-year-old memory, it was created in a five-year-old body with a five-year-old sensing apparatus and also the cognitive capacity of a five-year-old body in interpreting it. it was created into a gist which is really pretty stable. And so when you activate that now, you're playing it in the body that you have now with all of the sensing capacities now, but also the cognitive capacity to interpret that experience if that remembering of that, or that activation of the gist creates uh, a memorable experience, that is to say, an experience that has a high enough emotional content with it to make it across the bridge between short-term memory and long-term memory, then it's re-remembered. And so that gist then plays not only with the original data that was encoded, encoded but every time you replay the memory and it's remembered again uh, have you ever uh when you were a kid discovered a copy machine and then copied a copy and then copied a copy then copied a copy and then copied a copy um it gets further and further away from what actually happened and what was the actual cause of the Uh, just from being created in the first place. Also understand that we don't have a video recorder in the mind that collects all of the data and and preserves it for us. We really have these highly curated uh, sensing experiences, and what we remember out of that is not what happens, but what it means to us. And then when we remember what it means to us, we include in the, uh, the memory the experience of uh, remembering it, so what it meant to us when we remember it again. And so you have these rather complex gists that are then associated with different kinds of experience. Is that all making sense so far? Because it takes strong emotion to create these gists in the first place, and we tend to be biased toward uh, urgent or dangerous experience, a lot of times we can create uh, gists that have a negative bias to them. And in our creation of these more complex working models of experience that are loaded with all all of these different experiences, the sense of self, being the one that I'm really concerned with here. The sense of self arises, and we know that it's our experience of self because of all of the activations of gists that create a pattern of experience that we have identified as the experience of self. Make sense? If you grew up in adverse childhood conditions where there was a lot of difficulty then a lot of the associations that you make to the activation of the sense of self are going to be difficult. And if there's a, uh, a, a enough of a lopsidedness on the negative side of things, when the sense of self arises and is activated by circumstances, then <clears throat> you can have an adversive experience of the self arising. There isn't that much you can do to prevent the self arising. It's usually a reduction of stimulation, so you withdraw more and more from active stimulation if you have an adverse experience of self over and over again. But that adverse uh, experience of self can harden into uh, what we call in the West self-hatred. But really what that is, is this activation of the experience of self, which is largely negative, that we become averse to having the experience of. Then we cascade into this uh, hard, aversive response to the experience of who we are. Now, mind you, when we create these working models of self, we're not creating them through our direct experience of ourselves, we're creating them through the reflection of the caregiver. So we are spontaneous, we're without really limits, we express that uh, activity of ourselves, and then the sensitive enough caregiver hopefully takes that in, interprets it for us, reflects it back to us with a sense of delight, so that we delight in the sense of who we are, we delight in our capacities and the things that we find interesting in the way that we relate. And then they also provide a way of of providing, they also provide the care that we need so that we can respond uh, to the experiences of life that we're having. And in this secure loop, we express ourselves, our sensitive caregiver interprets it, reflects it back to us with a sense of delight and then takes care of us in the way that we need so that we have a sense of safety about ourselves, our demands of the world, and also the world itself. But if you don't have those experiences, um, and something else happens, let's say you're a colicky baby and you overwhelm the capacity of your caregiver to take care of you. And instead of reflecting back to you the the challenges as a delightful experience, they uh, reflect back at at you an aversion to it or uh, a sense that you're difficult or overly demanding, and that builds up over time. And we begin to create these working models of ourselves where we're demanding or a burden or difficult. This doesn't mean that all people would have responded to us that way. Just in the circumstances of our childhood, our caregiver in those moments responded in that way. And uh, at the different ages of that young uh, beingness, uh, we, as we are creating for the first time the working model of ourselves, we embed into ourselves the sense of who we are based on that reflection, Is that making sense? And then each time the sense of self arises, that working model activates and activates all of these little gists so that we create this pattern of sensing experience that we then recognize as uh, the self-experience. And if you don't have the insight into the nature of these processes, you can actually believe that that's an accurate representation of yourself even if it isn't uh, what's accurate, because it isn't an accurate experience that we have, It's an experience of what it means to us. Is that making sense? So what we want to do in this practice is begin to evaluate whether or not the working model that we have of ourselves is an actual uh, is an accurate reflection of who we are and what our capacities are, and that we're not limiting ourselves um, in by believing in the solidness of the self experiences and unchanging, fixated things. We would call that uh, fixed uh, views or uh, self-limiting beliefs. But you can't actually just make an intellectual decision about the nature of the conditioning of the self-experience because it does arise in each moment, and it does activate these patterns of experience that then create uh, the self-experience interacting with the environment that we experience. What we have to do instead is begin to evaluate uh, the balance of positive and negative states and then intentionally associate positive states with our sense of self, and then also intentionally associate positive states with the people that that, uh, form our experience of the world. In Buddhist uh, cosmology, self and world means self and the other people that you uh, engage in your life. that making sense? Did you have a question, Edward? Uh, No, it's
1: all making sense.
0: So, in the metavipassana way of practicing, the vipassana side, or the inside side, is pulling apart all of this stuff so that we can see what is actually happening moment by moment. And then on the metta side, or the heart side, the divine abode side, intentionally uh, generating positive states that we then can associate with ourselves and also with the other people uh, that we know and interact with. And uh, depending on how lopsided you currently are in terms of the negative side as opposed to the positive side, it might be quite a lot of work to begin to adjust that balance and push it over into the positive side Uh, It isn't so much an elimination of the negative side that is the fix. You have to also do the development of the positive side. Is that making sense? So then we engage in these practices. In the loving-kindness practice, the what we're doing is developing an antidote to the experience of... Let me pull this up by thinking about this and tried to create a, a definition of this that's accurate enough. The far enemy of loving kindness is anger or hatred. And so that it self-hatred, in a sense, is the is this anger at the experience of the self, the, the aversion to the experience of self it's arising, and the and often the frustration around it. The near enemy. And when we talk about the the mind state itself, the near enemy of the mind state and the far enemy. The far enemy is really the opposite, and the near enemy is something that's close, but not actually what we're going for. The near enemy of loving kindness is sentimentality. And the reason why I think sentimentality is the near enemy is because it's a self-generated emotion process in the way that we talk about it at Metagroup, that you think thoughts that generate positive feeling states in the body and as long as you think those thoughts, you're engaged in the experience of positive emotional states arising in the body, but it is taking you out of the present moment into the experience of thinking and generating emotion. So you can develop phrases, often elaborate phrases, that generate these positive states, but they do so only when you're in the act of generating them. When we talk about exploring the views of uh, the divine abodes, we talk about a loving-kindness view between ultimate reality and conceptual reality is where the view goes or the mind state goes, and it acts like a filter distorting the creation of a conceptual reality from the sensing experience of ultimate reality you incline the mind in a certain way by distorting the view of it christian
2: george because this is a kind of distortion um is there a way in which this practice can be used in like for bypassing um where maybe it's inappropriate or unskillful to use the practice or do you have some thoughts around that
0: I would think that the bypassing practices are mostly the near enemy of sentimentality rather than actually holding the mind state of the view. You're still fully engaged in the experience of the present moment, and you recognize that you're holding the mind state and also the way in which it inclines the experience. So you're not actually bypassing any of the negative experience by avoiding it. It also is useful in a way because you can respond to uh, anger and hatred in a much more loving, kind way, holding the view of it, because the, the perception of anger is distorted by the view. Uh, and also, it uh, because you are so centered in the present moment and watching all of these things happen, it's much harder for the sense of self to take hold and then feel attacked by the experience of anger that's coming at you. Is that making sense? That you can see clearly that this anger is coming because it's diffused in a way by the view. You're then able to respond in a much more helpful way. But uh, let me talk about how I, I like to think of this mind state. I like to say, Or actually, it was Seda Indica would say it's always cool, always kind, uh, open, friendly, curious. Uh, It's inclining towards someone. It's not passive or detached. It's lively. It's energetic. Uh, When we say cool, what we mean is there's an absence of the heat of desire. So it's not complicated by that. There's an absence of the heat of anger that arises from frustrated desire. So, lobo was the term that he meant, which is a specific type of anger that arises when your uh, satisfaction of desire isn't available. When we say kind, what we mean is a generous consideration and assistance for somebody without the expectation of return, so that when you're confronting somebody who's angry, You come from this place of kindness where you're considerate and attempting to be helpful without the expectation of return. It's open, so an absence of the heat of rejection. One of the things that happens when you're confronted with anger, of course, is the mind closes and defends, and then uh, you become rejecting, and and that has a tendency to uh, accelerate the anger. Friendly, which is a helpful affectionate and non-arming stance. Curious is an eagerness to find out about somebody else. So that you experience the anger not as a shutting down, uh, rejecting experience, but as an open, curious experience. So you're inclining toward the experience you're interested in, what's causing the person to act in the way that they do. It's lively and energetic. Um, I think uh, when we talk about the whole set, equanimity is also lively and energetic. But the near enemy of equanimity is detachment or disinterest. So this is not a disinterested, detached state. It's a lively, active state. Fully engaged, I like to say. Fully engaged in the experience of the moment, not withdrawn and detached from what's happening. That's the mind state. And so we we train the mind uh, first off to recognize mind states. I think that's the first part. Did you grow up in a family system where? your caregivers were interested in what your mind states were, and so they inquired about what your mind states were. They asked you about them. They asked you to tell them what was happening so that you would actually have to investigate what was happening and then describe it to them. If you had a caregiver that all through your life asked you what was going on with you, do you remember being around kids and some uh, uh, adults saying, use your words, I don't know what's going on with you. Uh, that's this process of teaching a child to mentalize their mind states or views and then express them. You seem angry, are you angry? You seem happy, are you happy? You seem excited, what are you excited about? All of these inquiries into the, the internal states of a child that then the child needs to explore And then be able to translate them into uh, communication with somebody else is the exercise of that. Did you grow up in a household where they weren't particularly interested in your mind states or your views? What was going on with you? That happens often enough. And if it did, you're going to have a harder time uh, understanding uh, what we're, we're talking about here. Uh, I like to say with all of these things, when you have to learn them now, it's a pain in the ass, um, but you can still learn it. A child can learn this. So as an adult, you could learn this. It's not uh, even remotely impossible. One of the things that so uh, so happens if you uh, that comes up quite a bit, you have visual thinkers and you have auditory thinkers, and often when we're in this dialogue of self-reflection and people don't have an auditory track, they think they don't have that uh, capacity, um, but they need to tune into then the visual experience, the visual thought process to begin to understand that, rather than just rely on the auditory aspect. So we want to, through the Vipassana side, investigate how our conditioning has set up all of these systems and to begin to mitigate the negative aspects of them. But we also then have to intentionally develop the positive side of them. That typically is done through these art practices. So in loving-kindness practice, we learn the view and we, we learn to establish the view and make that the object of meditation. The mechanism that's happening there is we're developing agency to create a particular view that we want and we're creating the capacity to sustain the view so we can recognize whether it's there or not. And uh, when we get good at it, we can do it on the fly. So if there's an angry response to something, We can push the angry view out and replace it with the positive view. This is the cultivation of intentional positivity. So loving kindness is the antidote to anger. Compassion, which is one of the practices, is uh, the willingness to hold the suffering experience of someone else. The near Enemy of compassion is sympathy. Sympathy is different than sentimentality. Sentimentality is a thought process that produces positive feelings. Sympathy is uh, uh, still viewing the suffering experience of someone else, but it's a non-empathetic response. So compassion is the only uh, practice of the divine abodes that's an empathetic practice, which is to say you connect emotionally to the other person they connect to you. And in that exchange of emotion, you have the potential to emotionally co-regulate somebody else. So you experience uh, the suffering experience of someone else as an empathetic experience. Uh, Three levels of empathy here. The first is just the visceral response to witnessing somebody else's physical or emotional pain. The second is where you're able to see uh, and interpret uh, emotional expressions in body language and facial expressions. And the third is what we call compassionate empathy, where you feel a facsimile of the emotional experience of someone else in your body. When you bring your emotional regulation skills to the empathetic experience of someone else and it's transmitted back to them through the empathetic exchange, they receive a version of their emotions which is more regulated. And then when they have an empathetic experience of you, and your emotions are more regulated than theirs, they have an empathetic experience of you that's more regulated. That process is regulating for them. They come back into an emotional balance. So The near enemy is sentimentality. So it's disconnected from the empathetic experience, but it's still attending to the... uh, Suffering experience of someone else. It's just an internal experience of that. And then the far enemy of compassion is cruelty. Cruelty is the most common way that we disconnect from the experience of regulating them. That making sense? Uh, an example of that would be they deserve the suffering that they have. They've done it to themselves. It's their own fault. All of that stuff is a disconnection from holding space, holding the suffering experience. We have to be willing to hold the empathetic experience of someone else to be able to do this. So we have to have good skills for emotionally regulating not only our own emotion, but the emotion of the other person we reflexively reject uh, the experience of pain and turn away from it. And so this training really formally is about turning toward the experience of somebody else's suffering. But when we talk about self-compassion, what we mean is we turn toward our own suffering experience and open to it. The bandwidth of consciousness is very narrow, and it's easy enough to exclude uh, uh, our own suffering experience so that we don't have awareness of it. Or it's easy to disconnect from our own suffering experience by cruelty. So that's part of this process of uh, of, uh, aversion to the self-experience, this cruel reaction to the difficulty of the self-experience arising rather than opening to the suffering experience. We're all conditioned beings, of course, and the conditioning uh, affects our capacity to respond to things. Uh, And uh, our mentalizing can collapse, our emotional regulation can collapse. uh, And those things are based on the skill set that we learn in the family systems we grow up in, and the reflection of our conditioning And so we can witness ourselves not functioning very well, and instead of responding with a compassionate embrace of that, come with a cruel disconnection. So this training is to disengage from that, open the space of our own suffering so that we can attend to it. Sympathetic joy is a joyfulness. Uh, I like to use the word delight. It's it's more connected to the, the attachment vocabulary. A delight in yourself, and delight in other people, and in pursuing primary exploration. So it's another aspect that comes from the attachment world. Rooting for someone to succeed in their primary exploration, and they finding meaningfulness in this life. That's what we want to do. The near enemy of uh, sympathetic joy is rooting for somebody because you get a direct benefit from their succeeding. In, in a sense of pure delight, you're simply delighting in the beingness of the other person not whether you get a benefit out of that or not. And then the far enemy is envy and jealousy. Envy is typically around uh, material and social position. Jealousy tends to be more around relationships. I, I think for most people who feel jealousy or envy uh, you know the bitterness of that experience, and if you have the capacity for delight, then you also know the the richness and the the joy of that. So it's it seems to me almost a no brainer that you would want to go in the direction of delight because the experience itself is so pleasant, and away from the experience of envy and jealousy because it's so bitter. But then again, we are, we bump up against our conditioning. It isn't so easy to just switch that. You have to practice it. You have to build out the structures that allow that to happen. And that's through this practice of sympathetic joy, intentional positivity, rooting for somebody. And in our culture where success is celebrated so much, Really being on somebody's team when they succeed is a great thing. And if they don't see it as a as a, a quid pro quo, uh, it's even better. They love to share the, that with you. And then you have that experience of delight and ease in the world that you don't have otherwise. So uh, in some sense, yeah, you do get that. And then, of course, you have people to share your exploration, your successes with and the delight that comes at you for you doing well. And that really uh, takes you out to the far edges of what you can find out that you need to know. Whereas if you don't have that kind of support, you begin to limit the risk that you might take. So you have less and less of that. And then the last one is equanimity. In the early uh, years of my practice, I really did have the idea of equanimity as detachment, um, not reacting. And I remember the story uh, of um, the Zen master and the warlord. Do you know this one? So a warlord is entering into a village, and all of the monks are gathering everything and rushing out of the monastery, heading into the hills because they're so frightened about what the warlord will do to them. But the master simply sits in meditation, waiting. Um, Everybody has left the monastery except for the master, and a, a monk runs back and says, Master, master, we have to leave now, or the warlord will come and kill us all and the master sits in meditation and the the young monk flees. And then the warlord comes into the meditation hall and says, don't you know who I am? The master sits in meditation and then the warlord draws his sword and says to the meditation master, don't you know that I could run you through with uh, my sword without a second thought? And the meditation master opened his eyes and said, don't you know I could sit here and allow you to run me through this with the sword without a second thought? And then the warlord bowed and left. So that was interpreted, I think, early on for me as complete detachment from everything. Uh, And then sitting with Dan Brown and listening to him describe equanimity, what became apparent to me was that it's super lively, super energetic, and at the same time in perfect balance. So then the image I have is this surfboard stuck out of a 60-foot wave with the, the surfer in the distance appearing completely still. But if you zoomed in on his feet, you'd see he'd be moving a little bit here, a little bit there, constantly in this process of balancing, engaging in each moment and adjusting in each moment, lively, energetic. And so that's how I I come to think of this uh, piece of equanimity. It's this really lively, fully engaged, way of being in the experience of the world and constantly adjusting so you don't lose your balance the near enemy then of equanimity is detachment and the far enemy is craving aversion and unconsciousness you get swept up in uh, desire, you get swept up in aversion you get swept up in the content of everything and lose the capacity to monitor it, then you're just lost. Then we look at these practices of the divine abodes and the cultivation of intentional positivity as uh, an integrated skill set recognizing the arising of the unskillful mind states and understanding which approach is then the antidote to that. So we do have to intentionally develop each of these specific skills so that we have them and can orchestrate them together in a robust, uh, intentionally positive response to uh, the vicissitudes of our experience. We often focus on loving-kindness practice, but I think that you should devote an equal amount of practice to each of the different abodes until you really have a clarity about the mind states. Uh, In the beginning, sometimes identifying the loving-kindness mind state, identifying the compassion mind state, the sympathetic joy mind state, and the uh, equanimity mind state um, might be difficult. And so you need to really develop clarity and understand how they're different. It's Christian.
2: George, when your conception of the equanimity mind state changed, did you find it like, did you have to go through a period of searching for sort of a new conception of that mind state or like what how was that if you had maybe a different idea embedded for yourself before
0: well I think that uh I it was a really easy adjustment for me because it it actually mapped on better to what was actually my experience I was always noticing the liveliness the energy of it and in some sense attempting to damp it down because it didn't it wasn't flat so I think that if you you know listen to the morning meditation recording say from 10 or 15 years ago I was was really describing equanimity as a flatness and then as uh but I never could actually flatten anything out it always was energetic uh, uh, and so uh, I know in the Theravada world in the way that uh, they uh, practice, that that tends to uh, have a different effect than the way uh, Zen people practice or Tibetan people practice. Um, Dan uh, Brown and Judd Brewer did a study of the different effects of that, and they noticed that the the Theravada practices have a tendency to shut down the the uh, self-experience, whereas the Tibetan practices tend to activate the spaciousness of things. And so uh, in that no-self, shutting down of the self-experience, flattening that out, that uh, tends to be kind of the descriptors of it, whereas in the, the spaciousness, which is the Tibetan style of practice, there's no need to shut anything down because it becomes so expansive, nothing is intense. One of the things that has impeded my practice uh, or supported it uh, equally, I would guess, is that uh, because I came from such a cruel upbringing, the the level of kindness that I require in my teachers is extraordinarily high. It's unusual to, to encounter somebody who has a sufficient level of kindness for me to really settle in and be safe, uh, and without that, without that epistemic trust, uh, it's very hard to learn from someone. So, uh, and then um, having sat for so long with Shenzhen, uh, with the understanding that we were doing a traditional vipassana practice that. Uh, as my understanding of this deepened, uh, and I could see that actually that's not what was happening. (laughs) It was confusing to use the vocabulary of Theravada practice uh, when actually what we were doing was not that. And then the expectations that come not so much in Shenzhen's community, but in uh, uh, related uh, communities and texts, so I think that that's an interesting aspect of trying to figure out. Because in the West, where it's so adaptive and and feels so free in changing things, re-vocabularizing them, that uh, when you read a more traditional text, and it describes the expectations that you should have from practice, and and people are vocabularizing the practice that you're doing it as that, even though uh, the cool uh, light of dawn, you can see that it isn't actually that. Think, was um mm-hmm.
3: was Shinzen Young's practice that you thought was. Uh, I I can't remember what you said, but you thought you were practicing Vipassana. Right. But in fact, it was, was it more Zen? Or he's not Tibetan, right? He's more Zen.
0: Well, he was in a Japanese Vajrayana monastery.
3: Oh, okay. uh,
0: And he studied with Sasaki Roshi for 30 years and also studied with... uh, in Taiwan with a Theravada master. and so in his synthesis of all of that, he he offered a way of practicing that was actually a mashup of those. And in his uh, in secularizing it and making it available uh, for beginners, uh, those distinctions I think were were lost.
3: I see. Yeah. It, did, did you find that it was kind of watered down or it was just a synthesis that was easier for Westerners to pick
0: up? No, I didn't think it was watered down. I definitely agree with him that it's industrial straying.
3: Oh, I just okay. don't
0: think uh, that he uh, offered the the uh, footnotes. hmm you know, if you don't attribute the practices to one particular way of teaching or another and they're combined, uh, creates an experience of practice, but uh, you don't have the same effect that you would have in uh, in, a, in a more traditional sense.
3: Because you're following a tradition that's established and it well, has markers and pointers and
0: you tend to have the experience that is a result of the practice that you do and so right. in these lineage practices where the they're they're confined to these traditional ways of practicing you tend to have these predictable outcomes from the practice right which are then described in the literature right If you don't do that, you have uh, uh, an experience of practice that's different than what you would expect if you did the traditional way of practicing. But when you use the same vocabulary for a traditional way of practicing with with a series of practices that are not in that tradition, the outcomes that you have are more in accordance with the practice that you're undertaking and not and don't match as well in the descriptions of what's supposed to happen. And I think I think that that was my experience of it.
3: I see. So it sort of needs a new vocabulary a tweaked vocabulary.
0: Yeah, I think that the more um, you know there's these uh, resistances that maybe are particular to me. I'm I tend to be curious and when I get a bone, I really want to go into it. And when uh, when you have a secularized practice, you get a general term and not a specific term. Uh, and because in English, we use English words to cover many of the traditional practice words, you can be uh, thinking, which is what happened to me, that I was exploring something that was actually uh, what was being taught when it wasn't but I didn't have the depth of practice to recognize that I hadn't aligned it properly in the beginning.
3: That's a very valuable feedback for me because I've been in a lot of different lineages and it's very confusing. But if you stick with one, then there are predictable outcomes because you're following that teaching that over you know years and years have fine-tuned how you get there. But if and you're so, bouncing around, it's you're gonna lose it,
0: yeah. So you're not. You're gonna have the outcome of the practice that you have, which is not gonna match the descriptions of what's expected from the practice if you follow the, the lineage.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: So, I um, mm-hmm.
1: go ahead. Well, I'm interrupting, but <laughs> I can
0: wait. <laughs> No, I you're you're good, Cindy.
3: Well, I have a question on perception that was earlier on. Okay. But I don't want to, should I go or, Edward? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so earlier on, you were talking about perception. And I was wondering that perception is um, based on sensory inputs and meaning making. Um, so I wondered, is there ever such a thing as true perception or accurate perception? Because perception seems to have a bandwidth of being way off versus pretty, pretty direct. But is there such a thing as true or accurate perception?
0: Well, I think that you might say that ultimate reality was the true experience and then conceptual reality is what you make it into. But that's different than
3: perception,
0: right? Well, you take the ultimate sensing experience, which is true. That's what's happened, right? And then you compare it to the perceptual database and link that to uh, previously interpreted uh, sensing experiences. And if there's a close enough match, it rolls into conceptual reality, which is always going to be distorted in some way.
3: So can you give an example of the difference between uh, perception that is accurate and true versus a distorted one?
0: Well, if we use the word perception to mean the raw sensing data, so you are uh, your eyes see in the way that they see, if there's enough light, they take in data. There's sound and you, you're hearing, you take in the sound, if there's temperature, you take in temperature. If there's emotion, there you take in emotion. All of that is the the array of raw sensing data. Yeah. Uh, the perception of that, in terms of what your capacity to sense is, is going to be accurate, right?
3: Oh, is it? Couldn't it be distorted?
0: Well, it could be distorted depending on the quality of the mind, but for the most part, the raw data. They call it ultimate reality because that's the basis of what what you can know about what's happening based on being in the human body.
3: But the raw data is interpreted different by every single person.
0: Exactly. So that's conceptual reality. That's that ultimate reality.
3: So ultimate reality is the raw data? Yeah. Before it's been conceptualized. Right. So we can't ever know it?
0: Well, what we can know is the word in uh, Pali's Tajapanati. We can compare what the the raw data is to what we make it into. And in that process of going back and forth, this is the data, this is what I made. This is the data, this is what I made. This is the data, this is what I made. Uh, See if there's any distortions in there. And then if we see that the mind is equanimous and that the reflection is good, we can interpret uh, what we made it into as a, as a fairly accurate reflection of what it means to us.
3: Yeah, I, I'm still getting a little lost because I, it just seems like once it goes into conception, you You can never have an accurate raw data perception as true and accurate every time. Just by its nature, you're you're never perceiving fully accurately. It's all a fabrication of the data coming in and what you make of it.
0: It's all, yeah, your capacity to sense and then what you make it into.
3: Right, so there is no direct experience of perception. Yeah, what you
0: sense is not made into anything.
3: Right, if you were to be able to experience that, you wouldn't have made meaning of it. Right. I think I'm getting, or I'm confused. You just are always fabricating. So you're never having the full-on, true, accurate perception, because it doesn't really exist.
0: You don't necessarily need to fixate anything. You can just be in the sensing.
3: And that, oh, and not make meaning out of it?
0: Right, not fixate it into anything. Then fabricate
3: it, fabricate uh, it, yeah.
0: Then you're just in that ultimate reality experience.
3: Okay, that kind of starts to make sense. I don't yeah. know if I experienced that, is that part of meditation you just experience it is yeah okay i'm not there yet <laughs> okay <laughs> all right edward
0: shall we do some practice
3: i didn't know if edward had a oh question. edward
0: yeah. ask your question well i'm getting
1: by this recent conversation i'm one thing i'm thinking of is i love the course of miracles expression projection makes perception Making is not the same as creating, but then I'd have to get into the metaphysics. But um, yeah, it's duality. But um, I thought about you know ultimate or absolute reality as Rigpa, and uh, and then we get in in Course of Miracles terms um, the happy dream, or I like the saying after enlightenment, some Zen guy said, walking through hell is like walking through a beautiful park on a beautiful day. Right. So he's not, you know, he sees quote unquote hell, but it's not his hell because <laughs> he's right. in he's in heaven, you know? So um, yeah, it's, you know, all, you know, these different systems, you know, use different words, but Rigpa is, you know, it's beyond mind. I, I would say it's beyond good and evil and karma. I think good and evil and karma operate in the realm of, in the relative realm. But anyway, leaving that aside, um, I was curious. Did you, you talked about because of your your childhood, you you needed to have an extraordinary sense of trust, let's say, or no kindness observed in the teachers? So I was wondering if that's something you saw in Shenzhen. Um In my brief encounter with him, I I didn't pick that up personally. But uh, anyway, it, you don't even need to answer that. But I'm just saying that it, it's something that struck me curious.
0: Oh, I found Shenzhen to be unfailingly kind. Hmm, okay. The way that he expressed it is by uh, a delight and interest in everybody's inquiry. Okay. Uh, it's, it's quite unusual for him to get uh, uh, irritated uh, by people's presentation. Mm-hmm.
1: One little thing that I remember that he was at the community meditation center after he left ibmc i don't know what your years were with him but anyhow it doesn't matter uh just he would say after a meditation period he said now comes the hard part and that would be going up to the refreshment table and interacting (laughs) interacting with people right and i I thought i remember thinking right on (laughs) yeah okay
0: i'm done let us uh, do some meditation. Would you like to do loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, or equanimity?
3: Equanimity based on your talk. Right? Okay. right. <laughs> I mean, I'm only one person, but yeah, equanimity.
0: So I'm going to write the equanimity phrase because it's long. let go of the meditation how'd that go
3: I couldn't remember (laughs) the phrases (laughs) I wanted to read them but I thought that's not the way to do a meditation yeah it's
0: a long one it's the only one that's long it's the only one that's what it's the only one that's long. All the one, that, all the other oh, phrases wow. are short.
3: Okay, yeah, I'd need to memorize.
0: Yeah, Christian,
2: I think I think I resonate with the liveliness that you mentioned. Like I, I don't know if it's getting into meta territory, but usually when I do equanimity, there's like there's kind of like an inner smile to it. There's like a little bit, there's like a little bit of like a positive feeling for me. Yeah. Uh, It's not like I'm doing anything to particularly generate it that I can tell. Um, So that seems to kind of resonate. It feels like a nice, easy practice rather than um, uh, the, what what was the near enemy? Detached rather than detached. And also, um, in regards to like the, the ultimate reality, uh, thing that Cindy was asking about, I don't know if this is like a blasphemy, but whenever you say ultimate reality, I like, I translate it for myself as sensory reality or as what like sensory reality or sensory perception, just because the, the word ultimate has like a baggage for me of like, that's the thing right? Like that's the true thing. And right. and I, I understand you to be m- m- not saying that when you, when you kind of talk about the rocking back and forth. It's almost kind of like a dialectical thing.
0: Yeah, I think of it as the data. That's yeah. how I think of it. You know, and, and it's interesting because we live in these bodies that are just actively sensing all of the time. And so it's a constant flow of sensing data. And then we grab pieces of it and make it into something, and so that's really the process. And you really want to—I think of it almost as a rocking motion. This is the sensing. This is what I made. This is the sensing. And you're just constantly doing that. And so there really isn't much grab to the the versions that you make, because you're constantly making versions of things. And then that really is where the freedom comes is because you don't—you're not devoted to any particular version of it. And you're constantly investigating whether the version that you've just made actually is reflective of what's happening in in terms of the sensing. And so there's this, it's just an easy flowy kind of experience of being.
2: then George, can I uh, ask you a question at the end of this, uh, if I can just like have a minute to stay on afterwards?
0: Okay. Everybody good? (laughs) Um, we have a few things coming up. I did announce that we're going to do a level zero the first Thursday of the month instead of the I love you, keep going. Uh, so we'll be covering a a, a uh, presentation around the meditation and attachment approach that we have. Um, we do have uh, some level ones coming up and some level twos coming up at the end of the summer. If you're interested in that, take a look at the calendar. Uh, it's uh, most of that should be up by now. Anyway, I um, offer these teachings on a dona basis. Dona is the poly word for generosity. That means I I give the teachings freely, but I do hope that if you're resourced, we can um, uh, you can make a donation. It's helpful to me and also to the work that we're doing. Yes, everybody's invited to the, the uh, first of the month. It's just going to be a, a narrower focus uh, rather than the, the sort of free-range <laughs> approach for the rest of the time. <laughs> so yeah, please come. And uh, uh, I, I think it'll be uh, an interesting uh, dialogue, hopefully. Lively. Lively, energetic perfectly balanced
3: right with all these new people
0: all right thanks so much we'll see you soon